So the other evening when I began the retreat, I offered the Dhamma talk on the Four Noble Truths. And just a brief review, the the truth of our vulnerability as human beings, the truth of suffering. The second noble truth is that there is a cause. The third is that deeply understanding that cause, there can be an end. And the fourth is the path to the end of suffering that exists, and it's called the Noble Eightfold Path. And that's what I'd like to speak about this evening, the Noble Eightfold Path. Sometimes the Buddha would ask a question and answer his own question as a way of giving that information out. So once he said, what is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering? And he answered it simply by saying, it is the noble eightfold path. So these are the core values of our lives when we look at them. Uh, They're not really uh, foreign to us in understanding And some of the ways we might understand how the Buddha thought of them might be new to us or or just add on to what we already understand. So I'd like to lay these out for you in whole so you can see how they are categorized first. The first two of the Eightfold Noble Path are categorized in the um, area of wisdom. It uses the word, this Eightfold Noble Path uses the word right, like right view, right thought, right intention. And uh, sometimes, I think in our culture, it's easier to hear the word wise, because we, right implies there's something wrong, you know, all of that. So we could think of it as wise or complete. So the first two in the category of wisdom, there are three categories. First one, wisdom. The first two in that category are right view or wise view. And the second one is right thought or wise thought, sometimes translated as intention. Those two come together. The intention comes in the mind and it's uh, together with the thought so this part of wisdom says, it, it, the Buddha says, this purifies our view because we might in the beginning have a, a view that, for example, things are permanent, but we really learn by seeing more profoundly that they're impermanent. Um, and the same goes for, we see that uh, We've had this understanding that there is some kind of core self that exists, uh, either deep within us or in combination of a few things or outside of us. And we realize by looking more deeply the not-self characteristic, the anatta characteristic. And the same thing about dukkha. We have the understanding that uh, in the beginning of our Uh, path uh, on the spiritual life, we might have the thought that there is some kind of lasting happiness that we can hook into somewhere. And then we start seeing realistically that 
all kinds of happiness, even long-lasting ones. They change in their, in their life, long existence, and also end. And maybe other happinesses arise, but there is nothing that is completely and securely and forever that kind of happiness and joy all the time. So we begin to purify our view with this categorization uh, of wisdom, which includes right view and right thought, right intention. And the second category is the morality category, which we call sila, S-I-L-A. And this includes right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So this area, when we train in this area, um, it purifies our speech and behavior. And the last area of training is the training of the mind. And these uh, three areas specifically are training of the mind. Right effort, wise mindfulness, and... um, wise concentration. So I I want to fill those out this evening. And they won't be filled out completely because each one of those can take a long time to talk about, actually. I just wanted to give you an overview and maybe point out some of the more um, important things for our daily life. All of this is a training. They're they're not... um, vows that we take, that if we break the vow, we're going to be kind of off the path. I like in the precepts that we, when we take the precepts, we say, undertake the training. I undertake the training. And so sometimes we can't really do it, but, you know, we fall back, but we still keep keep going. We keep trying to do our best. So this kind of training is no small matter. It takes a really wholesome aspiration. It takes a lot of renunciation uh, to be able to do this kind of training. We, We really have to be willing to do it because it takes us beyond the trappings of the world. It takes a long term dedication. I mean, once we start, we can't really not finish. They say that, um, you may give up on the Dharma, but the Dharma won't give up on you. I mean, it, it, it calls you back somehow, all the time. Sometimes I know we want to take some long breaks, you know, but then we really get reminded we, that the life we were leading of walking this noble eightfold path really is a noble path. It's very ennobling. It, it's onward leading It takes a willingness to receive admonition from someone, like a teacher. Um, When I took up the training with Upandita, I was warned that you you really have to be willing to be sort of scolded um, about and, and kind of straightened out. And there were many times when, oh, I would just, I I would really feel stung by you know, that kind of correction. And 
the Burmese have a very strong way of, of doing it too. But uh, then I became really grateful that there was somebody who could actually point out where my limitations were and let me know. And that, you know, I developed a lot more humility, the ability to receive correction and um, not to be embarrassed by mm, not being completely right about how I was seeing things. So the willingness to take advice like that, it was really, really painful sometimes, but it was very growthful. Somebody reminded me um, about the time I visited him when he was in Oregon. He gave a two-month retreat down here, I think near Salem, many years ago, and I came to pay my respects to him. And when I went in to see him, um, I did my bows, and I said, Sayadawji, which means venerable, beloved teacher, I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to see you. And he said, I'm not here to make you happy. (laughs) I'm here to make you mindful. Because that's what's going to set you free, not my happiness, you know. He didn't say that last part, but I really understood that. Um, The Buddha spoke of the trainings of uh, this panya, sila, and samadhi. Panya means wisdom, sila means living in harmony, and samadhi means the training of the mind. And sometimes it starts out the other way. It starts out with sila, samadhi, and then panya. But I'm starting out this evening with how the Buddha actually started the Noble Eightfold Path and letting his uh, uh, followers know about them. He started out with the wisdom aspect. Because we need some bit of wisdom to actually start on the path. So these, these points that are being laid out do not have to be practiced sequentially. They're developed together. And sometimes we see in our lives we're developing more, we recognize we need to develop one more than the other. Um, And it's good to really take a look at them and see which one do I need the most self-training in or do I want to commit myself more to during maybe a period of time of my life this month or a year or something like that. They're mutually supportive and nourishing to one another. Sometimes practicing one, you already begin to integrate the others, like um, right action and right livelihood. Of course, you're going to put in the speech part of it, right speech. So it's very comprehensive and there's a lot of richness in them. It's really worthy of our time. You, you can, um, I'll, I'll put up the um, website on the board. It's, it's called Access to Insight. It's just all one word together. And then once you get there, just bring up Noble Eightfold Path and there's a beautiful compilation of understanding from Bhikkhu Bodhi on, on that website. So... I want to talk a little bit about right understanding, right view. Um, 
we need enough of this to actually get on the path. And because we're all here together, we all have not just a bit of it, but probably a great deal of that already, just because we're here. It means that we're willing to engage noticing the nature of things just as they are. We're willing to engage our minds and our energy, the effort that we put forth, to see how things are in the moment, without delusion or without distortion. So when we know when we're not seeing things correctly, you know, you talk about it in your groups and you know when there's sort of confusion or there's a covering up or there's an avoidance of something. And, and you open to it, mostly, you do. I mean, if you can't, something else is coming up that needs to be brought uh, attention to that. We begin to notice what leads to clarity and to insight and what is life-affirming. And so you yourselves, we ourselves, pick that up about this doesn't feel right. You know, it's, we're opening to something that makes us nervous or not because we need to survive or protect ourselves, but it feels like it's not going in the right direction that leads to harmony in our lives. Um, it leads to the opposite of disharmony, and we're willing to acknowledge that. So that's, that takes right understanding, right view, to be able to do that. It empowers us to live in harmony with our life. It's not like a reprimand when we're not doing that. It's like the opening to it empowers us because we, we see with right view where to go. We either relinquish something or we cultivate something. So this correct view or wise view or understanding would realize dukkha. And so this is why um, in, in the Four Noble Truths it said that, in the suttas regarding the Four Noble Truths it said that right view and right understanding is first and foremost the Four Noble Truths. And so that's why I gave that talk at the beginning everything that was offered in that talk is about right view and right understanding. It's also about understanding the, the cause and effect relationship of, of our actions and our speech. You, you begin to see, well, if I say it this way or I do it this way, it leads to disharmony not only around me but in my own heart because there's a feeling that there's something awry about this. So I'll, I'll fill that out a little more later. We begin to see what we're avoiding, that maybe we don't want to face some things that are about suffering. Or maybe it's too much and we're overwhelmed and we try to have a distance because that's the balanced thing to do right then. But if we keep doing it, we just avoid it. We avoid opening to it. Or maybe what happens is we cover it up with our justification about why we're doing what we do. There's a, there's a lot of writing nowadays about spiritual bypassing, and I encourage you to take a look at it. Um, just Google spiritual bypassing, bring it up on Amazon, and a, a few, a, 
our wonderful books comes up. There's one by Robert Augustus Masters on spiritual bypassing. And when you read it, you'll begin to see what we ourselves are doing to justify our behavior, to make it look spiritual, but it's really harming to ourselves and to others. And we, we kind of put it in a spiritual realm. Um, but somehow it just doesn't work. And he points that all, he points that out so clearly. And the other thing we might do is because we, we can't really open to dukkha is that we try to control, there's a lot of controlling that we do in our lives um, so that we don't have to face it. We run away from what's difficult. We run towards what's pleasant all the time. We busy ourselves in all the ways that we do that. But when we open to it, we begin to see it's not as hard as we think to open to it, that this is part of the wise view, the wise understanding. We open beyond the picture of the smallness of me and we see that in a bigger, in a much bigger way that this understanding of the truth of dukkha is universal. It's not, it's not so personal. It's not that we're wrong or that something's wrong with us because we have dukkha in our lives, because we have um, suffering in our lives. It's a universal truth. Everyone has that. And, um, and we're all having it in different ways. So what do we need in order to um, be able to face all that, which is what this retreat has been about is the integration of love and wisdom to see life as it is but to bring the kind of softness, the gentleness, the kindness into our lives that will help us kind of soften the blow of all the suffering we bring upon ourselves and we, and we bring to others and others bring to us to help soften the blow of that. We need, we need metta for ourselves, for others. We need the ability to recognize the good in ourselves. Um, So we have faith in our ability to walk this path and to recognize the good in others. So if they're off the path a little bit or off their not really aligning with their own deep values, then we know that there's a lot of suffering going on there. So we kind of have some room to, to hold that. We have compassion. So it helps us to develop a new relationship to life, to, to our own life, to the life of others, that we're, you know, we don't have to have so much blame for ourselves, so much guilt or blame for others because it's the way it is. Um, I love this quote by Carl Sagan, for small creatures such as ourselves, the vastness is bearable only through love. And I, you know, I read that just before I went on my retreat and there was somebody, somebody gave me a connection on YouTube to some of his talks. And one of them was about, um, he was with some astronomers 
and they were looking at the earth from very, very far away. I don't know, thousands, thousands, or maybe more miles away from the earth. And they were taking pictures of what they saw in this vast space. And they were just about done, and they were going to give up of what pictures they were going to keep. And he said, wait a minute, I, I, wanted, I want you to frame this one here. So they did. And what it, it was like, you know, these brightnesses in this vast space on this piece of paper. And down in the right-hand corner, there was this small, small dot, which was the earth. And what he did and what he talked about, I know you guys are making notes and everything, but just look up Carl Sagan and the small earth and you'll hear what he says. I mean, it's, it just brings you to another realm. And he says, in this small dot, so many wars were fought. One country, one religion against another. You know, so many great leaders kind of took over the minds of so many people and wreaked havoc on this earth. And there, there have been so many floods and destructions and people this and that, and then our wailing and, and whining about things on this very, very small dot. And I can't say it the way he said it, but it really brought me to another place of seeing the bigness, the largeness. Because, you know, we just tend to put things in this very small place and we can't handle it. I can't sometimes. So I loved when he said, for small creatures such as ourselves, the vastness is bearable only through love. So that's what I took with myself when I went off to my own retreat. Um, because it really just helped me to take that the, the truth of dukkha that I was taking so personally and just made it into a, more of a universal um, truth that it, it's part of something much bigger, something so beyond my own control over things. And it's what the Dhamma does for us. You know, we, we sort of begin to see life beyond the control we have of kind of rearranging our habit patterns and making them easier for ourselves to, to um, endure in a way. But we, we see it in a much bigger space. So when I was there... I did a lot of walking. It, it, it sometimes was hard to sit with, you know, just feeling that things were rising and passing away in the confines of what I call this body. So doing a lot of walking and walking in, in the place where I was at, and I had a, a little hut on, on the top of a, a hill, and I could see mountain ranges beyond. And it was a little small hut, but it was just the place I needed to see far. I really needed to see far. And, so, and see the sky. And so I would do a lot of walking. And then I would, whatever came up, it would come up into the vastness rather than into the confines of the body. So it, it just really helped me to, to let things arise and pass away and not be sort of so personalized in, in even feeling sensations in the body. And it was so helpful to see the bigness of it 
like that. And so that's how I, I want to um, help you remember right view and right understanding, um, a fuller view and a fuller understanding of, of life and this Eightfold Noble Path, because it's beyond really the sense of me, which is what, what part of it is about, really. It's, it's about, um, you know, not me, not mine, not who I am, but something greater than that, something vaster than that, something sometimes just imponderable, that how can we understand all this kind of karmic stuff that we are living out in our lives? It's hard to understand this body not even, you know, taking into account what people in our lives have interacted with us that is a cause and condition of what we're holding now. I don't know whether it was a Buddha or Achanchar, but when somebody asked about karma, they said, if, if you, you try to understand that, it will make your head explode. It's, it's so imponderable. You know, so how can we understand what really sometimes what happens to us or another being? So I've kind of put it all into this more vastness um, doing the best I can to handle my own life and and help others along the way. But it's so vast sometimes, I I just have to say it's just a mystery. There's so much that I can't understand about it. So this, this, um, you know, wise view and wise understanding... And so that leads us to the right intention or the right thought. If we've got the wise view and right understanding, then the right thought or right intention will come from that. Um, It has a major influence on our thoughts and intentions. Sometimes this second uh, noble truth or, or noble eightfold path, the second one, is described as right thought, sometimes right intention, but they come together. So in the Dhammapada it says, experiences are preceded by the mind, you know, by the view and, and um, the understanding of the mind, led by the mind, produced by the mind, if one's, and then it goes to thought and intention. If one speaks or acts with an impure mind, suffering follows even as a cartwheel follows the hoof of the ox drawing the cart. Experiences are preceded by the mind, led by the mind, and produced by the mind. If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, happiness follows like a shadow that never departs. So that alone, you know, seeing going from one of the Eightfold Noble Path factors to another, begins to see, begins to help us see cause and effect relationship right there. So right intention, right thought means that our thoughts and our feelings, our desires, our intentions are in complete harmony or the most harmony that we can muster up with the most wisdom we can muster up that we have. So when it's in harmony with wisdom and in harmony with how we think we want to lead our lives, our deepest values, then our life works. 
because we're in accord with how things are, with the cause and effect relationship with life. We know that if we something leads to a cause leading to unhappiness, we try to relinquish that, you know, what brings us there. And we incline the mind to what leads to to happiness. So, ideally, right thought or right intention is free from selfish desire. And you notice in the Dhamma it says selfish desire. It's free from hostility and cruelty. Because there can be desires that lead to the end of suffering and desires that lead to suffering. Desire in the English word does not really encompass the whole um, meaning of it in the Dharma. And I won't go too much into that now, but just that there are desires that lead to suffering and basically one of the words for that is tanha. Uh, it's it's one of the kinds of desire. And there are inclinations of the mind, which you might call desire in English, but they lead to the end of suffering. Like when we incline the mind towards metta, you know, when we incline the mind towards compassion. Um, so uh, chanda is another word. Chanda is the will to do something or the will to incline towards something. It's associated sometimes with the inclination to benefiting, but sometimes not. It's, it's associated to the inclination to cruelty. So chanda has two kind of directions to it. So we can't just use the word desire, and somebody wrote today, well, we have desire to have a mate, to have um, a good way to earn a living, and those are all desires that may lead to benefit for ourselves and for others. So, right thought, that's about right intention, desires. Right thought means attitudes and motivations that are aligned with love. I mean, this is kind of like a no-brainer. Aligned with kindness, harmlessness, that connects to right speech, right action, right livelihood. And um, when we know that that right thought means those attitudes, then the words that come out of our mouths will will be um, speech and behavior, speech and, and actions that come will be our behavior that's beneficial and will make us happy after we do it. We, we can think back and feel that I, I said the right thing or that was my intention. And um, sometimes we have the intention and we do the right thing, but it still hurts somebody. And um, we can't help that sometimes. But if we stand on our intention, and we know our intention was coming from the purest space we could come from, then our speech will too, and our behavior. So in, in our lives in the Dharma, we start to see more um, honestly and unashamedly what we're thinking (laughs) and um, what we're saying. And we're like, uh, we confess, you know, to one another. I mean, I hear a lot of confessions. 
I'm sorry that I can't say, just go say ten Hail Marys and it'll be done with, you know. But um, then try again. But we, we can, once we do that, it, it's really good for us because like Utejaniya says, we, we bring it from the unknowing part of the mind into the knowing part of the mind when, when that happens. And I remember a friend once who, um, he started to tell a joke, you know, and the Buddha said to his son, even as a joke, do not say something that's untrue. And so he started to say something that was untrue. And he said, oh, and he just put his hand on his mouth. So, And he said the word in, uh, in Pali, omusawada. You know how we say that in, in the precepts, veramani sikapadang samadhiyami, so that it would, don't do musawada, you know, so that it will lead, so that if we don't do it, it will lead to a greater sense of well-being. So I always remember that. So even to tell a joke, you know, that's a lie, um, even to say, oh, like, your zipper's unzipped, I mean, something like that, you know, it's like, oh, because what, what you're, you're kind of making a, um, something that's not true. And so I want to talk about right thought, going into right speech now, because there's a, there's a lot of um, constituents of right speech but the thing that stood out to me the most in my training was that um, to really be careful about how you say things, not to exaggerate and not to also diminish or underestimate what you're saying, to be, to be precise about what you're saying. And I've told this story to some of you before, but in my first month-long retreat, when I, when I first practiced with Upandita, that was in 1985. I, um, we went to a group interview, and the people were saying, oh, he asked, well, how, how are you when you stay with the breath? And what does your mind open to? Usual questions. And I was hearing in that group I was in, oh, I can stay on the breath, venerable sir. It, it stays on the breath a long, long time. And... Um, no, I don't see any hindrances coming up, you know. Oh, the mind is alert and awake. And I thought, oh man, I am in the wrong group. Because I was not, that was not happening to me. And so I gave my report. And, you know, truthfully, you just say a few things. But I said, yeah, there's a lot of sleepiness or whatever was happening, I just said. So that evening, when he gave the Dhamma talk, he um, he said that you are all here to realize the truth of, of life, to see the nature of life, and to begin to live in alignment with that. In, in his Burmese way, you know, it was translated, I'm paraphrasing. He said, how can you realize the truth if you cannot speak the truth? So when you speak to me, about your practice, you need to be precise and honest and really precise. And I can't help you if you're not precise. You have to say just how it is and not exaggerate 
and not diminish what, what's, your, what's going on. You won't realize the truth if you can't stand on the truth with your speech. And so he said, if you believe that you were not truthful, I want you to line up outside my door and to let me know that you were not truthful. And I want you to ask for forgiveness for your own sake. And so I, I was standing there and thinking, did I say anything? Did I, you know? And so there were people who lined up who, who said, that, that's the kind of admonishment you get from that kind of a teacher. And I really, I really, that really stood with me. And so my, my reports just had to be, I've saved a lot of my reports and I look them over, you know, and I think, wow, that is so like in the moment precise. <laughs> um, and I don't practice like that anymore, but it, it really made the mind precise, to see precisely if you have to report precisely. So here we take the precepts, of course, you know, and those are all uh, training towards conducing to greater harmony, uh, inner harmony with ourselves and, of course, with the community. So we undertake the training, basically, I'll just uh, synopsis it all, to not harm any of life and not make anybody feel uncomfortable or unsafe in this community. So we, we refrain from um, saying what is untrue. Of course, that's a silence. We refrain from killing. We refrain from taking what isn't offered from sexual mis- misconduct. That, that keeps everything kind of clear for the time we're here. And also from taking any intoxicants or drugs that will make the mind unclear. Because we want to see things really cleanly. So this kind of moral training has to do with um, kind of um, what they call having the guardians of the world. In in the Dharma there is called two guardians of the world. And they're really inner guardians. They're called Hiri and Otapa. And Hiri is that kind of modesty, or they call it moral fear. It's a good kind of fear that makes us feel responsible for ourselves. You know, like when our speech and behavior are, are rough or rude, um, how does it affect others? We really look at that and, and we're, what we look at is how would the person that we respect the most in our community, how would they feel about us if we, if we didn't have that kind of Fear, a moral fear of what would, how would they think of us if we transgressed in some way. I remember a, a friend of mine. She was um, she was in a retreat, and of course, it's totally anonymous, and it's nobody here. And uh, and she was um, really having some problems in in her relationship, and she said she was attracted to somebody else. And she, nothing had happened, but she was really attracted to somebody else. And, and it was getting close, you know, to, to it being something that would not be good for her family and the community. And, and I said, well, what's keeping you? And she said, oh, she said that, that inner guardian 
And she said, when I think of Upandita <laughs> and what he would think of me if that happened, he, she said, oh, I wouldn't go there at all. I wouldn't. <laughs> because that's who she respected the most in her, in her community. You know, she was a, a beautiful Asian lady, and so she really respected that. So she wouldn't want to act out. You know, she would really um, incline the mind towards more renunciation in that. And so there is that <clears throat> that um, hiri, and then there is that otapa. That's a kind of respect for yourself. You know, a conscience that I respect myself enough that I wouldn't do this, and I wouldn't hurt another, or or whatever it is, you know. So it's respect for others and respect for oneself. Those are the two guardians of the world. And those are the ones that kind of guide us in this um, moral uh, moral life, uh, morality, respecting harmo- harmony. Not just out there, but also in here. So... Um, I just wanted to go back to talking about truthfulness because I forgot to say that, you know, in all the bodhisattvas, bodhisattvas are Buddhas to be. And they become Buddhas because of their many lifetimes of cultivating uh, these ten paramis. Um, And one of them is truthfulness. There's loving kindness, equanimity, um, morality, effort. There, There are many of them. And um, in their lives, their countless lives, through world cycles, it said, they can break every single one of those. And they, they're still on the bodhisattva path, but they don't break the truthfulness one. That's how strong that truthfulness one needs to be in our lives, how strong we need to really be precise in what we say, not exaggerate, and, and not diminish or demean. So it's so important to stand on that commitment for ourselves. Then we trust ourselves. You know, if, if we can trust ourselves, as Achan Chah says, we will feel relaxed and unmoved by praise and blame, regardless of what others say. Those who do not have a firm foundation in practice in this practice of morality, can easily be sucked in. Perceptions can be warped as a result. When you understand this matter, you will truly be untroubled. Everything, you see that everything is Dhamma and everything we need to be careful about. So, there is now, talked about right speech and now there's right action. And basically, it's ethical and honorable action. It's responsible action, protecting life. The main um, hallmark of this is protecting life and respect for others. So, I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes I've come into retreat where my behavior at home hasn't been the best. You know, when I've, in, in past years, when, like I've, I've come to retreat after having a fight with one of my children. And, you know, 
and it's usually times of stress when you're you're trying to get somewhere and leave the house for a number of days. And so when I sit on the cushion, it's like I, I bring it with me. And it, it's not just that there's a basic problem, but it's just maybe I was I yelled at my daughter, or I said something I really didn't mean, and you know, and I can't say I'm sorry, right? I could, but you know, sometimes I don't. I haven't. So I sit on the cushion, and I have a very restless body and mind. And sometimes we know that even if things happened long ago. You know, it it opens our minds and we remember what we did a long time ago and my mind just shudders, like, how could I possibly have done that or said that? What overcame me, you know, to to do that? But we're human and, and that's what happens. And to actually acknowledge that, it means that those um, venerable uh, guardians are there. You know, they're there and they're saying, take a look at this take a look at this, and then we, it gets cleaned out of the system instead of staying kind of swept under the rug. And that's really good. It's empowering. It's rather than being an indication of inferiority when we realize it, it's an indication of strength that we see. We admit that I wasn't the best I could be then, but there's also some compassion for, for ourselves. So the training of um, sila in sila and the training in um, uh, the speech and behavior is um, looked at upon as that purification of body and uh, of action and, and speech. So there are protections for us when we do that. And part of that is right livelihood. Of course, you know, speech and behavior and livelihood go together. Those are our connections with the world. And it's right livelihood is livelihood that's life-affirming. It's free from deceit or um, free from things that may motivate others to be deceitful. I mean, I shudder when I think of the world of advertisement, you know, and um, what's, what's happening there. And, and it is the way of the world. We have to live with it. It's, it's the way it is. Not, not to blame in a way that is harsh, but we discern. It's, discernment is different from judgment, judgment in a harsh way. So when we have wrong livelihood or harmful wrong livelihood, it, it, um, it involves harm or cruelty, injustice to beings, or kind of um, not taking living beings into account. So we want to support that living in harmony and unity in life is coming into our livelihood as well. Sometimes if we ourselves are not so sure about the company we're keeping or the company that's paying our livelihood, we can, in that area, um, act out or be a model of right livelihood. We can do what's right within that. Because some people 
I have a dear friend, she's one of my best friends, and she was involved with a cattle company for a long time on Maui. And, you know, that involved raising cattle and bringing them to the slaughterhouse. And it was hard on her, but she herself was a model of right speech and um, right action. And, and she tried to live within that in, to the best of her ability. She didn't quit her job because it, it kept her going, but in her, in her family. So those three things, right speech, right action, and right livelihood, comprise the morality grouping. And then the grouping for the foundation and the training of the mind includes right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So, like, whole Dharma talks can be on each one of these, but really I'm just giving you an overview, and then you can go home and and there's plenty of ways you connect with you can connect with this uh, online and in books i two of the books i like the best is um dancing with life um philip moffat and, and the other one is bante gunaratna um, um the eight steps to happiness bante gunaratna's If you just go on Amazon, it'll all come up, you know, and you can look it up. So right effort. This has to do very precisely with the four right efforts, the four wise efforts. So I'm going to name them, and and they're like no-brainers. I'll tell you how we're practicing them here. One has to do with the prevention of unwholesome states. Um, Let's see that have not yet arisen, that have not yet arisen. Um, so if, if we know that we're going to be triggered, I was speaking with somebody today about this, and that person was just remembering, I was asking that person, what triggers your mind to go there? And there was some thinking over, and then there was an answer to that. And so I said, so watch out when you know that that could be a trigger for you see if you can prevent that from happening or not be in in the space where that trigger may happen or not be a cause and condition for that outer trigger to do something that would then make this another trigger from you too so for example I know um, that if I bring up certain subject matters with certain people, it brings up unwholesome states of mind in that person and then in myself. So, so I don't bring up those subject matters, at least at certain times. Or there's certain times you don't bring it up because you know that it's going to bring up unwholesome states of mind. So... That's kind of a no-brainer. Watch out for what are the causes and conditions and be careful, the timing, all of that. But if they have already arisen, unwholesome states have already arisen, be ready to, as as the Buddha says in this translation, abandon them. But not to push them away 
like with the sometimes with mindfulness, it's more like a baseball bat, like boom, you know, get out of here so I can now pay attention to my breath, which I've been trying to train you not to do, but to stay there a little bit, you know. <laughs> so, so we aban- how how are they abandoned really? They bring mindfulness to them, then. With the mindfulness there, it brings in the wisdom, and the wisdom sees that it's impermanent. Ba- basically, that's the most profound and really simple way that it happens. It's really that that unwholesome mind state is really letting go of itself. It's, it's it, just bringing mindfulness and wisdom to it. The wisdom factor sees that it's impermanent. Or... Um, Another way we do that is that when there's aversion or hatred in the mind, we practice metta. It's already arisen. So we can abandon it or maybe put it aside a little bit because we make something else stronger. It's not that it totally goes away, but we make something else the kind of the focus of our attention. So the next two are about cultivating and maintaining those that are wholesome states. So cultivating a wholesome state that has not yet arisen. So we do that by, like when we're doing the metta practice, we remember the good of somebody. And it says that to remember the good is a proximate cause for metta to arise. So we remember the good the best we can of ourselves or someone else. And that is a cause and condition for the possibility for metta to arise. So that's how we cultivate, use the energy to cultivate what hasn't arisen yet. And then maintaining those that have already arisen, same thing, you know. Metta's there, you keep keep it going by keep the practice going. So this is part of the mental discipline in this grouping Effort is really important as, as disciplining ourselves mentally. It's mental discipline, it's physical discipline. Um, of all these Eightfold uh, Noble Path, right effort was the thing that the Buddha talked about the most. And it's, I, I want to say also, it's not just about these four right efforts, but it's balanced effort. It's... Um, I call it gentle, persevering effort. Mm -hmm. Gentle, persevering. That's what's balanced, that you just keep going and it's persevering. You see sometimes you need to stop, sometimes you need to speed up, um, like do fast walking, for example, and sometimes you need to slow down and sometimes you know just the right uh, speed to take for yourself. Um, So... Right effort, and then we have uh, right or wise concentration. And this is what we've been doing in the metta practice, taking our energy and putting it onto the object of metta over and over and over again. So we can do that with any kind of an object, a, a candle, a light, something. But let's use what we've been doing when we do that over and over and over again, it's said to purify the mind. But it's not, it is not purifying it forever. It's for that period of time. 
it purifies the mind of two things, of greed uh, or attachment and of aversion. So, you, And when you really develop metta strongly, maybe you've seen moments of it where there's a lot of um, a feeling of cleanness in the mind, even just momentarily. Uh, and so during those moments, it's really important because that's what... That moment is something we remember and it draws us back to the Dharma so that we come back and we say, ah, that can happen. The, the mind knows the pathway there. It's possible. So wise concentration temporarily keeps the, the um, hindrances at bay and we realize the purified mind t- temporarily. And then we have wise mindfulness. Um, And this is the part of that grouping of the mental discipline, which is the four foundations of mindfulness. And so that's pretty basic for those of us on the path. That's what we've been practicing here, bringing attention to the body, to pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings, to knowing itself, and to the, the objects of the mind. So we've been doing all those things. It's the present moment, bringing the attention into the present moment experience of it in retreat like this. So those are the, the, that's the Eightfold Noble Path, kind of really in a nutshell. And what I would encourage you to do is to go home and, and look it up, I don't have to write it down for you. There's all kinds of ways you can find it yourself. And to be able to look at it with a discerning eye and and understand for yourself, where can I pay attention now, like in my daily life? And it might be that morality area, speech, action, livelihood. Um, Or it could be, Am I striving too much? You know, it could be the effort part you want to take a look at or, or not doing enough in, in the area of your Dharma practice. Only you'll know and you'll see what, what you need in the practice. So the Buddha said that this is... A, somebody said, well, asked one time the Buddha, what's the cause of... Um, you know, to get to Nibbana. What, what's really the... Is there um, a proximate cause? <laughs> because there's always this proximate cause to this or to that. And what the Buddha answered was, this is it, the Eightfold Noble Path. These are the causes that lead to the end of suffering, if we're really paying attention. So, just wanted to end this with... Um, this is from Ashvagosha. Just this was a an Indian, uh, an Indian person who was very wise, and adopted from the Buddha Karita. And this is in the actually in the Tibetan path. But he said the Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person to go into homelessness or to resign from the world unless she or he feels called upon to do so. Whatever people do, whether they remain in the world as artisans, merchants, officers of the king, 
or retire from the world and devote themselves to the life of religious meditation. Let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if, like the lotus flower, which grows out of muddy water, but remains untouched by the mud, they engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred. And if they live in the world, not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their minds. So this is us, you know, living in the world. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) To myself, too. (laughs) Okay. And I mean that sincerely. So let's just sit for a while and There's a lot of information, but take what's precious to you. Thank you for your kind attention. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.